right. Oh, thanks, Stuart. After all the excitement of last week, we're back in Matthew's Gospel, as John said, and we're starting our Matthew series today right back at the beginning. Not because we didn't get it the first time round, but because the elders cleverly... Oh, that's better. Very cleverly kept the passages we're doing till now because we're entering the Christmas Yay, bit. Now, it must be one of the easiest bits of Bible to find because it's the first book of the it's first chapter of the first book of the New Testament. So as you know, the Bible split into Old Testament and New Testament. So even if you're new to the Bible, just turn to the first book of the New Testament. And I'm starting in chapter one. And yes, I volunteered for this. Beginning to wonder why at this precise moment in time, but here we go. So this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abnimadab, Abnimadab the father of Nation, Nation the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. <gasps> David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Could you move my first page, please? It only works by nodding if you're looking at me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azar, Azar the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, we're nearly there, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. I have no idea if I pronounced any of that right, but there's some great names in there. If you're pregnant at the moment and you're having a boy, what about Zerubbabel? Or Shealtiel, they've not been taken yet. Or Jeconiah or Abinimadab. Some good ones there. Now, I was really inspired by this passage, which is why I volunteered 
to do it, but you're probably not very inspired at the moment. But hopefully, you eventually will be. Now, the eagle-eyed amongst you will notice this is Joseph's family tree, but I and Matthew refer to it as Jesus' family tree. So why? Because we know it takes two to make a baby, and Joseph had no biological input into the baby Jesus. Jesus was born of Mary and the Holy Spirit. So how come this is claimed as Jesus's family tree? Well, one, because he was the man chosen by God to be God, to be, sorry, Jesus's earthly father. Do you know, he stood by Mary, even when he could have put her away quietly. He protected his family and that new little baby. He provided for his family he taught Jesus a trade. And once all the kind of hullabaloo of his birth had died down, he probably accepted that he was Joseph's son. And there's weight to this argument, because when Jesus first preached his hometown of Nazareth, they didn't say, oh, who's this who's teaching us? They said, isn't this just Joseph's son? That was their criticism of them. That this is just the carpenter's son. What's he doing standing up claiming these things? So by then it was probably accepted that he was. But the second part that adds more weight to it is this. Adoption in the time of Joseph had a very strong meaning. Sort of almost more than it does now. If you were adopted, you had equal rights with the biological children, completely equal. So what they inherited, you inherited. So Jesus would have inherited Joseph's carpentry shop ultimately. And we also, says in the Bible, are adopted as heirs, equal with Jesus. We're sons and daughters of the living God. We can approach the throne of God because of Jesus' sacrifice, yes, but because we inherit all that Jesus inherits because we're adopted into his kingdom. I haven't got time to go into that this morning. So when you think of adoption here, of Joseph adopting Jesus, all that applies to Joseph, all that he has now applies to Jesus. So our righteousness, forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, all of these things come from being adopted as heirs of Jesus, if we know and trust in Jesus. So as an adopted son, Joseph's inheritance is his, including this exciting genealogy. So let's have a look at some of the people in genealogy and see what Matthew is trying to say and what else I'm going to try and say. So first of all, it starts with Abraham. He's the father of the Jewish nation. He's the first person to become a Jew. He was called by God, and he was told that his descendants would be as much as the grains of sand on the beach and the stars in the sky. Now, um, we can't see the stars in the sky so well in Darlington anymore because of light pollution. 
But when I was a little girl, I lived in a village with no street lights. And I can remember going back from church in the winter and my dad or granddad pointing out to me the Milky Way, Orion's Belt, uh, the Great Bear, all these different star formations. And one of my really big ambitions this year is to go and see the stars again. I tried last year on my um, 60th birthday, drove to a dark sky place in Durham, and it snowed and it rained, and it was dark, but you couldn't see the sky. You couldn't even see yourself in front, you know, hand in front of your face. So that's one of my ambitions. But if you think of the number of stars in the sky, even the number of grains of sand on the beach, that is the sons and daughters, supposedly of Abraham. And yet he was past childbearing age. He's the first one to have a covenant with God. And he is called by God to sacrifice that first child. And at the last minute, because he's willing to do so, God provides a way out in that he provides a, um, a ram in a thicket. And it just shows us also that Jesus, carrying on in that tradition, he is the Lamb of God. But Jesus is part of this covenant. Jesus is part of one of the promises. Jesus is Jewish. Matthew is trying to show us that all the way through this genealogy and the gospel, Jesus has come to fulfill this role of Messiah. And as he promised throughout the Old Testament, he's laying out his credentials here. So it's very much firmly rooted in he's a Jew. And if we move on to David, these seem to be the two people that Matthew is stressing. Kingship is introduced through David's line. If you remember, we did a series on David, and you've got um, the importance of his kingship. And Jesus is born in Bethlehem because of his heritage through Boaz, which is where Boaz lived. And Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who's going to introduce a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, who's delivering something new. And then Matthew moves on to all the prophets. And all the promises that are prophesied there are fulfilled in Jesus. So he does three neat packages of 14 generations in each. However, apparently if you're a scholar... There aren't 14 each. Isn't that naughty of Matthew to do that? He's massaged the figures, shall we say? It's what the government say, don't they? But a massaging of 14, 14, and 14 here. Why? Well, if you think about it, some names of the fathers are the same name as some of the sons. So if in a genealogy, a genealogist gets a John Smith, and his father's John Smith, and his grandfather's John Smith, it becomes pretty tricky. If you've got a very common surname, then it's really difficult sometimes in the genealogy to trace back who you're talking about. I've got a really common surname, Jackson, nightmare to trace. However, my maiden name, we were the only family in the northeast of England that were in the telephone directory with my maiden name, which will remain private. 
It's not that bad. No, I know it's not that bad. Thanks. So he's put it into neat terms here to make a point. You've got the 14 generations of being led by Abraham. You've got the 14 generations of the kingship. And then you've got the 14 generations in the exile in Babylon. And the point is God was faithful through all of them, through people. It's through people he works out his kingdom. It would be much easier for God to bypass us because we don't get it right all the time. We muck it up, but that's not he's chosen to do it. We learnt from John last week, we're living stones. That's the church, not this building, nothing else, us. And we might look at, you know, really weird lot. and We might not like everybody here. That's not what's important. As long as we love and serve Jesus and we work that out together and we get knitted together and play our part, we need everybody here to be a living stone, playing their part in whatever way, all different ways. And there is a neat little thing that some people might like, and that is David is spelt D-W-D in Hebrew consonants. And that is equivalent to the number 14, apparently. Four plus six plus four. I'm not into that sort of thing, but I, I thought I'd just put it in. One to impress you, and two for the scholars amongst you. So Matthew focuses in 14 generations to emphasize also the kingly role of Jesus, that he's introducing a new kingdom. Now, all that is very interesting, I hope, and necessary for understanding of Matthew, but it's not very inspiring, is it? And I said I would try and be inspiring. Well, hopefully you will be inspired by the next bit. So, in Jesus' day, to be a Jew, it's the same as today. You have to be born a Jew. You cannot become a Jew. You'll never be, well, you can, but you'll never be as Jewish as people are born Jews because you haven't got the genealogy of a Jew. You inherit your Jew Jewishness from your parents, but you do not inherit becoming a Christian just because your parents went to church. That won't make you a Christian. Just become, because you come here every Sunday, that won't make you a Christian. Just because you worship with us or have been on an Alpha course, none of that will make you a Christian. You have to choose to become a Christian. So whereas you're born a Jew, you become a Christian. You have to make a decision for yourself and choose to become a Christian by asking God to forgive your sins and believing in Jesus. And if you want to do that this morning, there'll be an opportunity at the end to give your life to God. And it's, it really is that simple. Somebody can explain it to you and pray with you, but it's a choice you make.
It's a choice of faith. I, when I think about what Mary had, she, she had the baby Jesus in her womb. The great God who made all the stars that I still want to see became a tiny babe with tiny hands living in his mother's womb. But she accepted by faith that what God had said to her. And her story was woven in forever through time into the bigger story. And we can also have our stories, our little individual stories, all of them woven into God's plan if we choose it, if we choose that. So you can make a choice this morning, and it really is as simple as that. So if you've never done that before, I urge you this morning to do that. Start a new life, a new journey with God. Did not do today. Right. Why I was excited by this passage is because it's got some anomalies in it. Um, I don't know if you've ever watched a TV programme and seen things that shouldn't be there. Like there's a famous one in those fans of Downton Abbey where it's, the room's fantastic, it's all period furniture, it's filmed you know, in a place which is apt for the series. And then there's a bottle of water on the mantelpiece that one of the actors has put there that they've been drinking in between. So this plastic bottle of water is in the background on the mantelpiece. And there's also ones where they suddenly catch a telephone box in the middle of a shot, a wide shot. Um, and if you've seen the film Atonement, it's filmed on Red Car Beach. So they try and make it look like the south of France. And the things that stand out in those that shouldn't be there at the time are anomalies. So for me, when I read through this, there are some anomalies. And anomalies, or it makes it sound funny now I've said anomalies too much. <laughs> the weird, the word, does it sound, sound weird? No, perhaps not. Okay, so the first anomaly is a woman called Tamar. And we come across her story in Genesis 38. She's actually been preached about in this church before. Now, what happened to Tamar and why is she included? Because if you look through it, Abraham's wife wasn't included. Sarah, great woman of faith, alongside Abraham. So why wasn't she included, but Tamar was? She stands out for other reasons. One is, she was raped by her brother. What a reason to stand out. That's awful, isn't it? She wasn't protected by her father, and yet her children, the twins she had, inherit the promises of being part of Jesus' genealogy. Tamar's story is woven through into God's story. Her name is ever remembered in the Bible and through this genealogy. Her story is woven in and redeemed and become part of God's story. And it's the same for us, despite whatever has happened to us, whatever's happened in our past, whatever's been done to us, however difficult and terrific, God can redeem our stories too. 
and he can include you in his family tree and weave your story into the greater story that's his kingdom and into the story of this place here where you've chosen to work out the kingdom. The next anomaly I come across is Rahab. Now, Rahab was a prostitute. Jesus has got some great people in his family tree, hasn't he? We've had somebody who's been raped by a brother and now we've got a prostitute. And it's surprising that she's included in the scripture, really, especially here. But she's seen as a figure of faith because she rescued and hid the spies in Jericho in return for her family being kept safe when Jericho was raided. So despite the means for earning a living in a very dubious way, we know she was supporting a much wider family and she was obviously doing all she can to earn money, but she showed great faith and compassion looking after the spies who come to work out what was happening. So despite your past, whatever you've done of your own choice, however awful, just like Rahab, your story can be woven into God's story. You can be redeemed through Jesus. And Jesus can redeem you and include you in his family on equal terms with everybody else, whatever you've done. Whatever choices you've made in the past, your story can be included here too. So far, we've had somebody raped and a prostitute. Feeling inspired yet that your story can be part of God's story? You might be sitting there and thinking, wow, I've never done any of that, and yet God can, is using me. Well, let's go to Ruth, because Ruth is in the same boat as all of us if we're not Jewish. Ruth was a Gentile. And Gentiles were not Jews. There's the most simple explanation. If you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile. And the Jews and the Gentiles didn't mix, didn't get on. And if you look in Jesus' day, it was the same. Now, she'd been married and then widowed. And her mother-in-law, who was Jewish, was widowed also. And her sister-in-law was widowed. That is sad, isn't it? A lot of sadness there. That left them also with nobody to look after them. The father-in-law's dead, the husbands are dead, and as women, they couldn't earn their own living unless they resorted to what Rahab did, and therefore they were just left. And Naomi, the mother-in-law, gave Ruth the option to return to her hometown and go back to her family where she would be provided for because she knew that if she was left with her they would probably just starve to death but she refused to go she chose to align herself with the people of God and with the mother Naomi and she makes a lovely statement that their God was going to be her God and her people were going to be her people as in Naomi's people were going to be her own. 
And as a Gentile, she's included in the family tree of Jesus. Next form. So she also aligns herself with God and she leads by way of an example as a Gentile included in Jesus's family tree, which is amazing because Jesus, when he comes along, breaks all the rules and fulfills them all, all at the same time. And he speaks to Gentiles and he includes Gentiles. And he shows that the gospel is not just for Jews, but God's plan ultimately was to include everybody. So she is a significant part of the family tree. So, so far, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done to you. And it doesn't matter if you've been not somebody who's been part of the kingdom. Everybody's included. You're all welcome. The next person, Matthew can't even bring himself to write her name. He calls her Uriah's wife because he can't give her the dignity of her name. But I will this morning, her name was Bathsheba. And I don't know why he couldn't bring himself to write her name, but she had a really bad rep by the time Matthew came to write. And I don't know why, because none of what happened to her was her fault. David takes her in an adulterous relationship, which she has no choice over, and then has her husband killed. He's a bit of a naughty boy, David, isn't he? Sleeps with somebody, she gets pregnant, age-old story, sends her home, gets her husband back from the fighting at the front line, thinking, well, if they sleep together, they would be taken on as you right. He doesn't do that. So ultimately, he thinks, right, move him into the thick of the fighting and he'll die. And then he takes Bathsheba on as his wife. In none of that do we know how Bathsheba felt. She'd be seen probably today as part of that Me Too generation. Somebody who's been manipulated by somebody stronger, a man who's stronger and in a position of authority as a kind of sexual porn, really. Women could be used as the king wanted them in those days. And looking through 20th century eyes, I've got a lot of sympathy with her. But the people reading about her at the time would see her as adulterous. So however much you feel perhaps you've been pushed around by people in power or used as somebody in, in a... Um, bad way or even somebody who's been in an adulterous relationship which either was your fault or not your fault God can include you and your story too which is absolutely wonderful just think your story can still be part of his story we had a prophecy this morning about God calling his sheep do you know his sheep know his name? But more excitingly, God knows your name. Because this is a list of names. And I read them out on purpose because they were people. And the kingdom is made up of people. And God knows your name. It's so clear 
in scripture that God calls us by our names. There's an absolutely beautiful bit after Jesus has risen from the dead in the garden and Mary, who knows him really, really well, you know, she's been part of his entourage, as it were, for, for years, mistakes him for the gardener. Now, her eyes are full of tears, but even full of tears, surely she's going to know it's Jesus and not a gardener. And how does he convince her? He just says her name. And there's something about the way he says her name that she knows instantly that it's Jesus. And it's the same for us. He knows your name. When my sister says my name on the phone, I, by her voice, I know instantly who she is. I know instantly who all my different nephews are, even though they all sound the same to some people. When people phone me up, I usually know who it is by their voice. There's something about our names that are important to God. Your name is known. Your name is written in the book of life. You are known to God. You're not hidden this morning. Nobody else might notice you, but God knows your name. He knows you inside out, back to front, upside down. God knows you. And our names are written in the book of life if we love Jesus. <clears throat> so although this genealogy was written hundreds of years ago, I hope you can see how Jesus' gospel is inclusive. That whatever happened to people, what have they done of their own account, what have been done to them, whatever mess they got themselves into, they are all included here. And their stories are woven into the biggest story of God's kingdom. And I find that both encouraging and inspiring. Because I've had quite a difficult year this year in, with health problems and things, and feel like I've kind of been a bit sidelined, and every time I wanted to do something, I ended up either in hospital or ill, or goodness knows what. And yet, I knew that in all of it, God is faithful and he knows my name. He knows my story. And however black the threads got, it's being woven into the bigger tapestry of um, kings here. And whether I do nothing or do something, God still weaves me into his kingdom. And I find that so reassuring. So what I want to say to you today is that God is the same yesterday as he was to Abraham, today and into the future. And let your story too be woven into the fabric of God's story. I wanted to end with a song that reminds me of this. And the song it's got a lovely line in it that says, He knows my name. The God who came from before all time and through all time 
is the God who knows your name. Let's pray together.